The sessions are all being recorded, and so the speakers will speak into the microphone. If We do hope to have questions and answers following the presentations, so we'll just ask them to repeat your question for the microphone so that we get it all in the recording, okay? Thank you. And let me turn it over to Rebecca Elder from uh, Amigos Library Services. This is not Gina Minks. Gina had a, a conflict and couldn't be here, but uh, Rebecca she volunteered. instead. So, and I'm delighted to be here because disaster preparedness <clears throat> is so much at the heart of what preservation is really all about. So I just can't wait to hear about everybody's projects. Um, just going to do some quick introductions and then turn it over to the people you're really here to hear. Kathy Crogwell Varda is a museum curator and consultant with more than 25 years experience in the field. And she's been an assessor for the conservation assessment program for 16 years. Lorraine Umfleet is the Chief of Collections Management for the North Carolina Department of Cultural Re Resources, managing how the agency cares for, collects, stores, and exhibits the objects in its custody. Lorraine also directs the IMLS grant-funded North Carolina Connecting to Collections project. And then Lori Foley is the Vice President of Emergency Programs at Heritage Preservation, the national nonprofit dedicated to preserving the country's cultural heritage. Here's Kathy. Thank you. <coughs> Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm getting over a cold, so I'm going to try to talk for 15 minutes without coughing or blowing my nose. Um, Good morning. Like much of New um, England in the Northeast, Connecticut took a real beating from Hurricane Irene last month. And unfortunately, this wasn't the only natural disaster to hit our state recently. In the last two years, Connecticut has had to deal with 50-year floods, tornadoes, blizzards with record-breaking snowfalls, an earthquake, and a hurricane. While these would be challenging events under any circumstances, we can at least say in Connecticut that our efforts to help museums and libraries develop disaster plans began before the weather took a turn for the worse. Perhaps our timing couldn't have been better as we have seen a real commitment from institutions in the state to become better prepared for emergencies and to take the necessary measures to protect their collections. This morning I'll be discussing the efforts we have undertaken in Connecticut to assist cultural heritage institutions in preparing for an emergency or disaster. Our approach, as you will see, was, um, has been to address the, is this issue on many fronts, including training workshops, marketing materials, and organizing a new professional group to work with our cultural institutions and first responders. In 2008, Connecticut became one of the first states awarded an IMLS Connecting to Collections planning grant. Conservation Connection was created through a collaboration of museum and library organizations in the state, and the key personnel from these institutions remain actively involved in our advisory committee. I was hired at the start of the grant as the director of Conservation Connection which um, is based out of the Connecticut State Library. Now, Connecticut has no county government. It has few regional government structures. There is also no tradition statewide to conserve Connecticut's cultural collections. Although there are several state agencies and museum and library organizations in the state that provide some support for conservation and preservation efforts, the scope of these projects are very small and very limited. 
And as a result of the economy for the last several years, these budgets have been continually reduced. There is no agency in the state that funds collection surveys, conservation of collection items, uh, equipment or storage room upgrades or collection storage room projects. Since there is no one group, public or private, that serves as a statewide umbrella organization addressing collection care needs, advocating for more resources, or coordinating training for all of Connecticut's collecting institutions, Conservation Connection was created to fill this void. Among the goals for this project were to identify critical collections at risk, staff training and education needs, intellectual control and management of collection records, identifying conservation expertise within the state and the region, and identifying institutions that do not have emergency and disaster preparedness plans. In an effort to collect this information on these aforementioned topics, a statewide survey was launched in April of 2009. Uh, we developed a website for Conservation Connection, and we uh, provided lots of links for other information about collection care, and we provided a link to our online survey, which was also explained on the website. Now, the survey was developed along the lines of the Heritage Health Index, and it collected data in Connecticut on all aspects of collection care, storage, preservation training, as well as institutional information. This statewide survey was a real historic opportunity in our state for archives, museums, libraries, and historical societies. And it was the first attempt that we had made to prepare a comprehensive report on the condition and preservation needs of collections in the state. The data collected clearly indicated that the vast majority of Connecticut's collecting institutions were not equipped to handle an emergency or disaster if one should occur. 63% of the institutions that responded indicated that they did not have an emergency or disaster preparedness plan. Of the institutions that had a plan, 70% were not trained to carry it out. While this information did not come as a surprise to any of us who have worked in the museum and library fields in Connecticut, we did feel that this was an issue that we could no longer postpone addressing, as this posed a real threat to Connecticut's cultural history. Conservation Connection applied for and was awarded a Connecting to Collections Implementation Grant in 2010 to address this lack of disaster preparedness in Connecticut's collecting institutions. And as part of this grant, a three-part workshop series on emergency and disaster preparedness was developed. <clears throat> now, the three-part workshop series was done in collaboration with the Northeast Document Conservation Center and was intended to double the number of institutions in Connecticut that had disaster plans and that would be trained to carry them out. Uh, Conservation Connection partnered with uh, NEDCC for this workshop series, and Danya Khan, the Education and Outreach Coordinator of NEDCC, served as our workshop's principal faculty member. The workshop was offered in three parts, as you see here. We had 79 participants from 47 institutions, which included museums, libraries, historical societies, and archives. In part one of the workshop series, participants attended a workshop called Disaster Planning with the D-Plan Light. Now this took place in July and August of 2010, and due to the size of our group, we broke it up into four smaller workshops that were held at the service centers of the Connecticut State Library in Middletown and Willimantic, Connecticut. 
The morning lecture covered disaster planning in general, activities involved in disaster planning, why having a disaster plan was important, and how to use NEDCC's online disaster planning template, uh, D-Plan Lite. During the afternoon session, participants had the opportunity to begin work on their disaster plan in the computer labs at the Library Service Center. Um, here you see we had so many attendants that we were overfilling the computer lab, so we encouraged people who had laptops to bring them along. This was, for us, this was a really key component to this workshop series. We really wanted to provide our participants with an opportunity to begin filling out this D-Plan online with someone from NEDCC there to answer their questions and to make this process go even smoother for them so it would be a really positive experience, they were all sent homework, which was basically information to collect about their institutions so that filling out the forms would be a lot easier for them. Now, the workshop participants were given nine months to finish their disaster plan, which seemed like plenty of time. Um, however, by the end of 2010, uh, Danya called me and said, mm, we got an issue. We're, we got a lot of places that aren't near the finish line yet. I'm like, okay. So our, my approach was that probably the reason this wasn't getting done was the reason why sometimes I don't get big projects done is that there are too many interruptions in the workplace for them to really focus and keep going. Once you get into D-Plan, you've got to have a block of time to do it. You can't keep picking up and going back to it. So our solution was in January, February, and March of this year, we provided one morning a month, a Monday morning, where for no charge whatsoever, our participants could come to the Library Service Center in Middletown, use the computer lab, and as I said, before your week has even started, just tell your boss, that Monday morning, I'm going to be working on D-Plan. And then you have the whole rest of your week after lunch to start whatever you have to do at your institution. We didn't have quite the turnout that I was hoping for, but what was really obvious is that the people who showed up really needed this time. And as you can see in the, in the image on the right, um, oftentimes it was a cluster of people who came from one institution because they all realized, we'll all take a section, we'll all take a computer, and they really made a lot of headway in these mornings. So this really, um, helped us with a big problem that we were facing. Now part two of the workshop series was held in April. This was a two-day disaster response and recovery workshop. And again, because of the number of people participating, and we found all of our participants want to send more than one person to the workshop series so that there'd be several people at their site who understood this process. Um, we held it twice. Danya Khan, again from NEDCC, was one of the faculty members, as was Alexandra Allart from Our Care Resources in Newport, Rhode Island. Danya, NEDCC, of course, is a paper-based conservation lab, and Alexandra Allart deals with objects in museum object collections. So we had both of them contributing to this disaster training. Um, so this was two full days of training. The first day included a brief review of disaster planning and prevention, followed by a real in-depth look at disaster response, drawing techniques, how to set priorities during a disaster, and how to document what was taking place. Day two began with a review of salvage priorities in a disaster, and then introduced the disaster response team structure for salvaging. And this was really hands-on training. The group was broken into 
smaller groups of three. Each of them were taking on a role that your disaster team members would have during a disaster. And then there was the fun part that they actually got to go into a disaster. So the remainder of day two consisted of them going into, we're fortunate that the library service center includes this big concrete garage. And you can get really, really wet. So uh, Donya and Alex had sent up a museum room where there were all types of collections, paper, textiles, paintings, ceramics, you name it, it was in there. There were even fake uh, bugs, fake rats. Um, there was soot, there was mud, there were rocks. And we had turned on a sprinkler during the whole morning session. So then they came in all dressed. We had told them how to put on protective gear, what they should go in with. And we, they had their disaster team roles and they were sent in. Go figure out what kind of disaster this was. This is your institution. You've walked in and this is what you've found. What are you gonna do? And so that's what you see here in these illustrations. The ones on the left, they're assessing the damage that has happened at this institution. And the ones on the right is when they're starting to do the, go through the salvage priorities and start dealing with the triage for the collection. Um, <clears throat> now following doing this wet salvage exercise, um, which some people just threw themselves into and were really gung-ho, and you could see a light bulb going off on a lot of these people. And some started out very timid, but by the end, they were really working, they had gone in as individuals, and as you see by the blue tarp on the bottom, they were really working as a group. They figured, let's take the tarp outside in the sun, and let's bring the collections out, and that was the whole part of this. They weren't being told by the instructors how to do this. They were told, go do this. Um, so then part three of our workshop series is what's taking place currently. This is um, in part three, Danya Khan comes out to your site. She does a walkthrough. She reviews what your risks are at your institution. And then she sits down with your disaster team, goes through your disaster plan. And she also then will take you through a tabletop disaster model with your institution to make sure that you know how to take your D plan and put it into use. Because we gave out so many resource materials as part of this workshop series, including a um, emergency salvage wheel and the field guide to emergency response, every participant in this program received what we call their little black box, like you find on airplanes. So they received a black acid-free document box in which to store all of their resource materials and all of their disaster plans. Uh, I can tell you this works because last month when we had Hurricane Irene, the Shoreline Trolley Museum, which was the hardest hit site in Connecticut, it sits only three feet above sea level, so it was really inundated with um, storm surge. Um, they were one of our participants, and with the storm coming, they grabbed their black box, they had it in a safe location. When they saw the damage, they got it out, they started making their phone calls with their contact list. So we at least can tell I my list. It worked. Um, there were more people in Connecticut who needed help with disaster planning than could attend our workshop series. So Connecticut, for the first time this year, celebrated May Day, and we created this flyer, and all of you received a copy of it. This brochure was designed to help cultural institutions make that first connection with their fire department and their fire marshal in their community. And it provided information on how to contact them, how to get started, what kind of information you needed to provide to them, and what information they might want to know from you. And we wrote this in conjunction with firemen to make sure that we ex included 
their input so that both sides were equally represented in this flyer. So this was one way to try to get these sites to start taking that first step for disaster preparedness. We also launched a new professional group in Connecticut. COSTEP-CT is based on the COSTEP model developed by NEDCC. Um, it's been very successful in Massachusetts and other states. When we sent out the first email, we had no trouble recruiting professionals from the museum and library fields who had experience with disaster mitigation and response. Um, we're, we're a very proactive group, and we've done a lot. We started meeting in February of last year. We have a website, we have a mission statement, we have a vision statement, we have a set of 20 goals. Um, we're halfway through our set of goals already, which is really nice. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and one of the things that we'll be working on, here's just showing where some of the steering committee members come from in our co-step group. One of the things that we're working on, like most co-steps, is bridging that gap between cultural heritage institution staff and first responders. What we have done is we have partnered with our Connecticut State Historic Records Advisory Board and with Conservation Connection, and we applied to NHPRC for one of their SNAP grants. And we received funding to start this fall a series of mutual aid meetings that will be held in each of the uh, emergency management centers of Connecticut, the way they break up our state. Lori Foley will be coming to um, steer our roundtable meetings, and they're meant to bring in all the cultural institutions from that area to have the state representatives from that region attend, as well as members of COSTEP, and to start setting the, the framework to have these institutions work together and be there to help one another when there is an emergency or an event in their neighborhood, their part of the state. What we're hoping for and we're already recruiting is that all of our participants in the disaster workshop series will be the core group to help launch this in these regions. We have some from every part of the state and since they have now gone through pretty intensive disaster response training, have their own plans, have gone through these exercises, they're really going to be the core people when uh, this project starts. And here are some of the goals for COSTEP as well. So at this point in Connecticut, we've had a busy couple of years with disaster planning. As I said, the mutual aid meetings begin this fall. COSTEP CT is still working. We're still reaching out to bridge this gap between cultural institutions and first responders. We're making some good headway. The final part of our workshop series funded by the Connecting to Collections grant is going forward. Um, as part of that, um, all the visits are videotaped by cameras we bought with our grant funding. So we're having a really good response and we can say that this time when Hurricane Irene came up and hit Connecticut, we saw a lot more preparedness, a lot more institutions taking steps before the storm hit. So as a result, we really did very well this time around. So we hope this is a good trend for the future. Thank you very much. Hi, welcome, and uh, give you a brief overview of North Carolina. We too experienced some Irene fury, and I liked what the fellow said last night about earth, wind, and fire because we had fires, we had earthquakes, and we've had plenty of water. That's something that we expect in North Carolina sticking out into the Atlantic Ocean like we do. Um, 
We have received both the planning grant and the implementation grant from IMLS, and I work for the Department of Cultural Resources, which is the statewide agency that <coughs> sort of manages our own museums and historic sites, but reaches out to the private nonprofit sector as well. We collaborate with a great number of partners across the state. We have the North Carolina Museums Council, Federation of North Carolina Historical Societies, the North Carolina Preservation Consortium, the Society of North Carolina Archivists, the NC ECHO Project through the State Library System, the State Historic Records Advisory Board, Macron, Tacron, Nacron, I'll get into those later, but those are emergency response networks. It started with Macron in the Mountain Area Cultural Resources Emergency Network, and then it goes on from there. So we'll talk about that a little bit later uh, because they have become our model. Uh, we surveyed our state, just like we heard about all the great surveys uh, last night. We uh, surveyed North Carolina. It took us 10 years because we're a big state. We have 100 counties. And uh, from the mainland to the mountains far west, it takes about 10 hours to do the drive. That doesn't count going out onto the Outer Banks, which some parts of the Outer Banks, you can't get there except by ferry. So um, it, we have a diverse state. Uh, Kevin, who's also from North Carolina, we argue there's four North Carolinas. There's two different parts of the coastal plain, and then the Piedmont and the mountains. So, and the culture in those areas is divergently different. Um, we do have a museum way out there at the very farthest point at Cape Hatteras, uh, right out there in Hurricane Alley. And um, the building, thankfully, was built to withstand a Category 3 storm and it's withstood all the storms that's been there, uh, including Isabel, Irene, all the ones you can start naming. Of our collections, we have 950 cultural heritage collections, and we were very specific about what we called a collection. And we have library special collections, and there's 236 of those with varying degrees of professionalism. But libraries and archives have more professionalism and higher degrees of training for things like collections care and disaster preparedness and arrangement and description than do our museums and historic sites. We have 31 archives, 458 museums, largest category, and of those, the largest individual category are small regional history museums followed closely by state, uh, by historic house museums. And I'm from the historic house museums primarily, so I, I can commiserate with the challenges that they face. Now, here's a little bit more interesting types of museums we have. We also have 27 state historic sites and 10 state parks, five Boy Scout museums, <laughs> 14 jailhouse museums, five taxidermy museums, 11 fire station museums. That's Fred the fire horse. He died in the line of duty. They saved him, the, the taxidermy didn't take, so now they just have his head. Um, so. If you go to Newburn, you can visit Fred's head. We have five Harley-Davidson museums. Who knew, right? <laughs> and 16 military museums and archives. There are 34 depot museums, and that number is actually higher now. Uh, every community with a train depot has started to save it. It becomes the historical society's headquarters, and then it turns into a museum. And sometimes they move them, sometimes they work with them in situ. Our cultural heritage institutions care for more than 13 million objects and 200 million linear feet of archival materials. 
And that's a staggering amount of the stuff of history to care for. And one of our biggest statistics is that 60% uh, of the institutions are museums and historic sites, and 51% of them have a budget of $50,000 or less. So that's our target group. Those are the folks we're aiming for in our workshops and programs. Even as budgets are shrinking, collections are increasing exponentially, and there's no budget for building storage facilities. I mean, even at the state level, we need a combined storage facility. And I've been preaching to the politicos, we need storage, we need storage. And one person told me, well, storage isn't sexy. I mean, they can't have a wine and cheese party in a storage facility. So, you know, we're, we're, we're having a real problem with storage in North Carolina. So what did we learn about our institutions through our survey process? We learned that 72% of our institutions have no disaster response plan. And one of the things we do in our disaster workshops is we scare people into participating. You know, <laughs> put the fear in them that you know this could happen. We have the costume shop fire at the Lost Colony. We have the Chatham County Courthouse fire. The Chatham County Historical Association had a small museum in an upstairs room in the Chatham County Courthouse. The uh, Tweetsie Railroad, which is an attraction, but they had a museum and they lost their collections facility. And the Thomas Wolfe Historic House Museum in Asheville had a fire. And Thomas Wolfe's fire was what was the impetus for the beginnings of a mutual aid group in Asheville called MACRIN, the Mountain Area Cultural Resources Emergency Network. And it's, it, we've built on MACRIN's uh, project. So we scare them into participation. And Irene helped. I hate to say that there's something good that comes out of a hurricane, but it did. It, it, we've, those people on the Outer Banks are hardy people, and they, you know, they don't want outsiders. You know, I get the, hi, I'm from Raleigh, I'm here to help, and they're like, oh, no. Um, they don't want you out there helping. Even though I'm from eastern North Carolina, they, you know, government, eh. And, but I'm starting to get some responses from some Outer Bankers because we're offering assistance. We're going to be going out to Chickamacomico Life Saving Station. Say that three times real fast. <laughs> and... Um, they had some major damage as a result of Irene, and some historic structures were lifted off pilings and set down sideways, and collections were all tumbled up in there, and we're going to go help. We're going to, you know, boots on the ground. And so we're building some goodwill, and we're reaching into those communities where we couldn't get assistance from, or get them to come to our workshops or anything. On top of this, 60% of our uh, folks say that storage is inadequate. Uh, unfortunately, that is collection storage at the left. For more institutions than we'd like. Uh, the center photo is what we would want, uh, but it, it ain't going to happen for very many people, unfortunately. 86% have no professional conservation staff. And that number is not going to get any better in this current economy, unfortunately. So for North Carolina, training is key. We're offering workshops across the state uh, to train uh, folks on disaster preparedness and collections care. And Collections care works into the disaster preparedness because if your collections, if you have intellectual control of your collection, if you have it properly stored, if you know where things are, and if you have documentation to support your um, idea of what your collection is, if you have a disaster, you're better equipped to respond to caring for that object afterwards. So even in our collections care classes, we preach proper storage, proper, you know, putting things in a microclimate and those sorts of things to preserve things in the bigger picture. And um, I have statistics here I have to reference. 
Uh, in fiscal year 2010-2011, as part of our C2C Connecting to Collections workshop series, we had 799 participants at 24 presentations. So we're getting out there, and we're working ourselves to death, but we're getting out there giving these workshops. And um, in our disaster workshops, which is the reason we're all here, they get a handbook, a nice big handbook, for building their disaster plan, learning how to do recovery operations, and we do a lot of talking. We give them a lot of paper because we have so many people we need to reach. We can't be as hold their hand as some of the other smaller states. So we, we give them a big workshop where they get a lot of information, and then we follow up by phone calls and emails to see if they're really doing what we wanted them to do. And we get them to practice local risk assessments. Uh, as part of my funding for the implementation grant, I hired a disaster preparedness coordinator who was a first responder. He didn't come from the cultural resources field. He came from the firefighting field. So he speaks a different language about emergencies than I do. And we've been training him on how, we had to give him training through our collections care trainer on how to handle objects because he had no idea. But he knew how we needed to think about disasters. And he's FEMA and all the certifications you can get. He's got a long list of certifications. And so he's helping us with responding and we're helping him reach out to his community to teach firefighters about what it means to respond to an emergency at a historic house museum or a museum of any sort. So it's a great uh, sharing opportunity. And one of our fun things that we're getting ready to do in November is a controlled burn. We're going, we've been hoarding stuff, you know. <laughs> People clean out offices when they retire and they get rid of the, the tchotchkes they have in their office. Well, now they're becoming artifacts <laughs> that will be burned. <laughs> so firefighters have training facilities where they have fires. And he's worked with two different training facilities in North Carolina. We're putting all of our tchotchkes in. Uh, Hollinger boxes and artifact boxes and we're hoping to get some vitrines and we're gonna have monitoring equipment in there and we're gonna set the building on fire and they have video cameras so the people who are participating in that workshop that we're having it's gonna be a two-day workshop for uh, cultural heritage institutions they can see the fire they can see what's going on because uh, you know all of us at some visceral level like playing with fire evidently so anyway, we're going to see that. They can clear the building, let us come in, and begin triage and salvage hands-on things. We've done hands-on wet recovery workshops at a number of locations, and those are always well attended. People like playing, you know, let's destroy books on purpose kind of thing. But um, this is a new opportunity to try something a little bit different. And um, I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's going to be fun, going to be dirty. And uh, so it, it will be interesting to see how we work through these two controlled burns. And uh, finally, one of the things we do are these disaster response networks. MACRIN I've already spoken about. It's in the mountain area. We have TACRIN, which is in the triangle area. We have NACRIN, which is in the noose area. We have WACRIN trying to form in the Wilmington area. And we have CHACRIN in the Charlotte area. And so we... <laughs> We're wondering if we need a different set of alphabet soup letters, but um, it, it works. Everybody knows when you say TACRIN, you say MACRIN, they know what that means. And what that means is the people in the cultural heritage institution in that region, maybe one county, two county, three county area, it's sort of a, a factor that you, you decide, you know, how many people in this area can 
rel relatively easily get to an institution to help with response. And um, they get together, they network, they get familiar with each other's institution so that if you have to come into an institution all of a sudden you know okay this is where the gift shop is we can leave that stuff alone this is where the collections are stored this is the exhibit areas these are the most important parts that they consider of their collection so that you know everybody knows each other and can work together in the event of an emergency now one thing that we have to think about is that if it's a huge natural disaster that affects the entire region all of those individuals will be focused on their personal and their particular institutions. And they may not have the wherewithal to come together to assist each other. So we're developing a statewide emergency network too. And that will be housed in the Department of Cultural Resources most likely because we are the logical place to do it. None of our partner institutions have paid staff with the North Carolina Preservation Consortium or the North Carolina Museums Council. So we have to bear the burden in state government, in the state agency to, to do this. And um, we're gonna get AIC cert folks like David Goist to help us and, and other people who are highly trained con conservators or first responders who are part of our statewide team. So if something happens in some other part of the state, we can go help them recover. So this Chickamacomico life-saving station is our first sort of statewide experiment. And I wanna see how it works, I wanna see what doesn't work and what, you know, so that we can build on that and develop our team further. And um, the TACRIN group was just formed right before the Chatham County Courthouse fire. And the Chatham County Historical Association I was on the phone to one of the board members, they don't have paid staff, and she was panicking. She, I don't even know if we'll have a collection to salvage uh, because the building was still burning, the cupola was getting ready to collapse into the building, and you could see through the building. And uh, we didn't know if there would be anything to salvage either, but we were there to help them. And thankfully, they didn't lose anything to being completely burned up. They had water damage, they had soot damage, they had all the things that come with a fire. But over here on the top right is our conservators from the archives and the Museum of History and uh, our private community helping them with triaging their stuff in a warehouse nearby and beginning the recovery process. They had no idea, they had no plan, they didn't know where to start. Um, the first responders went into the building and got the stuff for them, they didn't go get it. Uh, it's, it's like we were talking last night, uh, most of the people in Chatham County Historical Association are retired and aging. So they physically couldn't get in there and do the work. So us young whippersnappers had to help them. And uh, down at the bottom is uh, Hurricane Floyd recovery. I'm sure everybody remembers Floyd and the flooding we had with Floyd. So um, we're getting there. It's These regional response networks are really important and I feel like they're the way to collectively train, collectively recover from disasters. So that's, and, and the training is not just on writing your disaster plan, but it's the recovery. It's caring for your collection in the first place so that you, you have a good idea of your collection that you then can recover it. Finally, Hurricane Irene. We had 220 cultural heritage institutions in her path, in the direct path of the storm. And we're still doing assessments. There are still some areas we have not been able to call and talk to them personally. Uh, some people 
they lost their homes and they're dealing with the damage personally and they can't even think about their institution. So uh, we have varying degrees of problems in that way too. Um, some of our good pat on the back things, there was this one tiny historical society in Newburn. They uh, had no plan, they had no idea about responding to a disaster. Uh, they had one go-getter retiree who came to a couple of our workshops. She took what we told her about disaster response back to her uh, <coughs> institution. Hurricane was coming. Newburn is right there. It always gets it. And um, they did what we told them to do, and they didn't have any collections damaged. They had broken window panes. They had wind-driven water. They had minor flooding and none of their collections were injured. And she, she made a point to call me and tell me and, and brag about what they did, thank us too. So I was like, yay, we, we did it. We got through to the hard to reach people. Um, we had museums and libraries flooded, uh, some galleries flooded. One gallery had two feet of sewage in their facility and folk art collections were damaged, uh, which are some of the you know, mixed media things that are very hard to clean in the first place. And uh, thankfully, most of the trees that fell, fell away from the buildings. They were nice enough to do that. They may have hit a fence, but they didn't hit a building. Uh, however, at Chickamacomico, I keep saying that, they're out there on the Outer Banks and right there where, I don't know if you see it in the national news about Highway 12 getting breached at three points. They were at one of the breaches. And uh, so Irene created the breach, broke the dunes, damaged the buildings, floated all their ramps and steps away, and you know, jiggled the buildings, and then Katya, the second hurricane, she didn't make landfall. She stayed way out nicely. She was polite and stayed away, but she created huge swells. And so the breaches that were already in our dunes and our outer banks were open to receive her swells. And so the damage that Irene caused was made worse by Katya's swells. And so at Chickamacomico, one of the buildings during Katya was lifted and tilted over. So we have, you know, collections tumbled over inside that building, and they had no inventory. So we're going to do an inventory SWAT team while we're also <laughs> helping them recover. And um, so we lost lots of National Register structures on the Outer Banks. They just, the buildings are gone, just gone. And uh, she wasn't that strong a storm, but she hung around too long. 17 hours of perpetual hurricane force winds in some areas, as many as 30 in other areas. So that constant beating that you get is, is part of the problem with hurricanes. So for North Carolina C2C, uh, we can work together to help care for our collections. And where our office and our C2C project is being the catalyst to help these institutions. As part of Hurricane Irene, my office, we participated in the governor's hotline. We were telling the people at FEMA and in the governor's office and everywhere else that we are here if an institution calls and doesn't know what to do, send them to us, we will assist. We didn't have that happen, thank goodness, except for Chickamacomico. See, I'm learning to say it quickly and fast. And uh, we created a database of the damages that we assessed and uh, we're making individual calls just to check back with people and follow up and see if there's any additional assistance we can provide. So thank you much, that's me. Good morning. I'm delighted that you're here because one of the competing sessions is 
the end of PowerPoint. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, I'm glad you're here. So uh, Kathy and Larray have given really great examples of successful disaster networks. And I'm here to provide you with some tools that have been developed by Heritage Preservation so that you too can develop a successful disaster network in your community, in your state. And in one of the Alliance for Response programs that Heritage Preservation put on, there was an emergency manager from Savannah Cultural, Savannah Emergency Management Agency, and he said he was a firm believer in R&D, rip off and duplicate. <laughs> and this is exactly where we need to go. There is no reason in the world that you need to think that you are alone in this activity, that there's no support, that you have to start everything from scratch. So Heritage Preservation is here to provide you with a number of resources and tools that you can use, uh, most of them for free, that will enable you to start this very, very, very important idea of connecting to your emergency management community. How many of you participated in this past year's May Day event? So May Day is something that Heritage Preservation provides as an incentive for institutions to do one thing for emergency preparedness. And it would be really great if I were to fast forward and ask that question again in a year that everybody does something, is able to raise their hand and say, we did something. It could be as simple as updating your staff contact list because most important is having the right contact information for your staff and volunteers so when something happens, you can get in touch with them, find out where they are, find out, make sure that they're safe. Most of you have seen these tools before. On the left, the Field Guide to Emergency Response, which is a very simple way to get information that you need, contact information, and walk you through the initial response activities following a disaster. On the far right is a book written by the Georgia State Archivist called Implementing the Incident Command System at the Institutional Level. ICS is the management structure for emergency management, and that is the way that they deal with all responses to any kind of incident. And so it's incumbent when, let me back up a little bit, when something happens at your institution that your institution can't deal with, say there's a large fire, there's huge flooding, massive flooding, first responders loom large and are in charge. So you no longer have control over your facility. So it's incumbent upon you to know how the emergency <coughs> management community works, how they operate, and this book will give you a really great introduction to not only the incident command system, but how you can implement this structure within your library. It can be used for preparing for a flood, it can be used for responding to a flood, it could even be used to prepare for a major event. And I spoke to an emergency uh, manager at one of the states that we've worked with, and she was saying she's very involved in the incident command system, and she said, I could have used it to plan my wedding, but I didn't. <laughs> Good. The publication in the middle, Guide to Navigating FEMA and Small Business Administration Disaster Aid for Cultural Institutions. It's a really ugly looking book, but it's really, really valuable. This is something that's available online, and we have handouts on the table that you can pick up for the URL. When something large happens and there's a federally declared disaster, private nonprofits, cultural institutions have to follow the structure and the protocols that are administered by the federal government, by FEMA. And how do you do that? 
following a recovery, and how many of you have been through a recovery a major from a major incident? It's an incredibly laborious, overwhelming, bureaucratic process when you are already traumatized and you're already in a very difficult situation, both mentally and your structure might be physically damaged. So having this guide, it walks you through the paperwork that you need to do, reminds you of certain um, guidelines and certain meetings that you have to attend. For instance, you have to attend the applicant briefing if you intend to apply for disaster assistance. Whether it's through FEMA or whether it's through the SBA, as a private nonprofit, you need to follow the rules. And so I always recommend people to get a copy of this book. It tells you what kind of documents you need to have ready to go when you start making that initial connection with FEMA to register for disaster aid. So I encourage you, especially if you've been in any of the disaster-affected regions, states uh, that have are now responding and recovering from both Irene and Tropical Storm Lee to get this out into the community. And if anyone wants help, we can, um, Heritage Preservation, I can certainly help you get it in the hands of the, the federal uh, regional environmental officers of FEMA so we can make sure that this information is disseminated to uh, the cultural institutions. You're all familiar with the emergency response in Salvage Wheel. And coming soon to an app store is the application for an iPhone as well as an iPod Touch, it's not been formatted for an iPad. Mm -hmm. uh, but it will be, it's exactly the same thing as the wheel. It, you can carry it, although you can carry it in your pocket, this one. So it has things, and I have to thank NCPTT for being able to provide us with the um, knowledge and the programming to be able to do this. So it's essentially the same thing as the wheel, but translated to a digital format. And so there are um, <coughs> references to both the formats as well as to what you actually do, the salvage and response activities that you were to undertake. And if you were to, I guess click is not the right word, touch any of these applications, you would get the same information that's on the wheel. Remain calm and be reassuring. <laughs> So this is going to be available soon. It still has to be approved by the Apple Store, and I believe it's going to be available for free. So for me, it's great because maybe I'll finally be able to get a smartphone and use it as a tax deduction. <laughs> <laughs> Heritage Preservation is a co-sponsor with FEMA of the Heritage Emergency National Task Force. How many of you have heard of this? Oh, great. I can just skip all these slides. So we're in partnership with a number of organizations, 41 it says here, that include IMLS, NEH, AASLH, AAM, NEA, uh, the National Association of Tribal Historic Preservation Officers, the Small Business Administration, the International Association of Emergency Managers. Those are just some of those agencies. And the primary goal of the task force includes the primary goals to help cultural institutions prepare for emergencies and obtain the needed resources when disaster strikes, to encourage the incorporation of cultural and historical assets into disaster planning and mitigation at all levels of government, to facilitate a more effective and coordinated response to all kinds of emergencies, including catastrophic events, and to assist the public in recovering treasured heirlooms damaged by disaster.
name that hurricane. <laughs> this is Irene. So the task force responds to major disasters by connecting response agencies with cultural heritage leadership. And so far this year, the task force has responded to the tornadoes and the flooding in the southeast earlier in May, and most recently to hurricane slash tropical storm Irene and tropical storm Lee. To assist in these recovery activities, we convene a national conference call. Many of you were on the conference call if your state was affected. We track reports of damage. We try to solicit reports of damage from cultural institutions. And we distribute disaster response and recovery information via websites and press releases to the states that have been affected. So following the tornadoes in the southeast uh, earlier in May and the flooding along the Mississippi River, Heritage Preservation activated its information on major disasters page. And we've pretty much had this going since May. On this page are links to federal and state emergency management agencies. And we post state emergency management agency URLs because they are the source of very, very valuable information. They are the feet, they are the boots on the ground, they are the ones that you can connect with. And they have information not just for response and recovery that's currently ongoing, but also they're a great resource for preparedness, emergency preparedness and mitigation activities. So I encourage you to go to this website or to, to Google or to find your, the URL for your state emergency management agency and bookmark it because they will pull information that they're provided by FEMA and they will often post it. They also have Facebook and Twitter links, so they're, they're with it. We post the FEMA regional offices when the regions have had disaster declarations and we now have posted contact information for FEMA regional offices in nine out of the ten FEMA regions. So which region has not been included yet? Does anyone know? I'm going to jinx this. I know. I'm so sorry. It's region nine, which includes California, Hawaii, Nevada, places that Jane was very, very involved in, and John. So Guam, American Samoa, the Northern Marianas, Marshall Islands, and Micronesia. So why do we post this information? What good is it to have this information? Well, as you're striving to get the cultural heritage institutions connected with emergency managers, both at the state level and the federal level, these are the people you need to connect with, especially the regional environmental officers. They are very keenly aware that is their responsibility, not just to deal with historic preservation issues, but they are also responsible for cultural and heritage, cultural and historic um, assets as well. So get to know these people. They know you're out there. They are not, they're not going to make every effort to reach out to you because their hands are full. So reach out to them. Four months ago, we posted contact information of cultural agencies and umbrella organizations for 13 states. And as of today, we now have federally declared disasters in 35 states. And what we haven't posted here are four more states, which we still have to put up on our website for New Jersey, Nebraska, Utah, and Kansas. So it's been a busy year for uh, disasters. This is the work of Hurricane Irene, and this is a photograph of the floodwaters of Fishing Creek that have covered Route 11 in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. This was taken September 8th. 
Here we see friends riding out in a motorboat after helping a buddy uh, remove materials from his parents' home in Goldsboro, Pennsylvania on September 8th. And this is a picture taken at Lock 11 in Amsterdam, New York. The Erie Canal flooded and the locks from, I think from two to some enormous number, 11 or beyond that, are very damaged. And so this is a picture of uh, the foundation of Guy Park Manor. And you can see to the left that the foundation was scoured away. And on the left, you can see the stone wall in the northwest corner of the West Wing are about to collapse. They've been stabilized somewhat. The Guy Parks Manor housed the Walter Elwood Museum, which lost a significant portion of its collection. And so this is one of those things that you just aren't really expecting. In Cranesville, New York, also on the Erie Canal at Lock 10, the floodwaters from, at this point it was Tropical Storm Irene, buckled the floor beams and mangled the walkway at the Lock 10 Dam. And this is what's left of the powerhouse at Lock 10. Uh, this historic structure has been around for nearly a century, and it is no more. So as Ray had said, you know, disasters are great for getting people to think about dealing with their own institution and how you're going to address preparedness activities. We also provide a way to report damage to cultural institutions and or to collections. And we share this information with the FEMA Preservation Officer, John Ketchum, and with the ESF-11 National NCH Coordinator at the Department of the Interior, Jane Yagley. And she has a huge business card. No. I encourage you to submit damage and response information when you're in a position to do so. And why, why, why do we care? Why do we want to do this? We share this information with FEMA and the Department of the Interior because they have federal and uh, regulatory mandate to be able to address these issues. So following a presidential disaster declaration, FEMA requests updates on, from agencies on anything that's been affected in the, their sectors. And so FEMA and the Department of the Interior seek information on damage to historic structures, damage to cultural and historic resources, your collections, and potential requests from state or tribal historic preservation offices. And their legal responsibility, without going into too much detail, is to facilitate emergency support function 11, ESF 11. And ESF 11 is one of the support functions to the national national response framework. And some of these other ESFs, emergency support functions, deal with transportation, communication, mass care. And ESF-11 is a conglomerate of sorts. It's sort of been a dumping ground. So ESF-11's official name is Agriculture and Natural Resources. So it deals with nutrition assistance, animal and plant disease and pest response, food safety and security, the safety and well-being of household pets, which was new to ESF-11, and natural and cultural resources and historic properties, NCH. And so ESF-11 has deals with mad cow disease on one side and historic documents on the other. And so you can understand why it's kind of difficult for the cultural heritage community to get its voice heard when you're dealing with so many other issues under the same umbrella. But we all together can help push this issue and make this something that is noticed and recognized. 
One way that you can start pushing and getting it recognized is to work with Alliance for Response. The Alliance for Response is, how many of you have heard of this program? All right, great. It's a national program with the goal of connecting cultural heritage stewards and emergency professionals before disaster strikes. Thanks to funding from the Fidelity Foundation and the National Endowment for the Humanities, Heritage Preservation has held forums in 18 regions across the country since 2003. And the initiative begins with a one-day forum that connects people from the cultural heritage community with people from the emergency management community, with emergency responders. And this kind of relationship leads to new partnerships and local projects. Lorraine and Kathy have both shared some of the activities that have happened um, as a result of these Alliance for Response activities. In Savannah, the Savannah Heritage Emergency Response Disaster Network, or SHARE, used the risk prioritization worksheet that Heritage Preservation developed called REP, Risk Evaluation and Planning Program, to evaluate the level of risk that Savannah's cultural institutions face from a variety of disasters. And the information has been shared with, their, with the Savannah Emergency Management Agency, so they are on the same page. In Raleigh, North Carolina, Takron launched a hotline for area cultural organizations to call. So they have a hotline when collections are at risk or damage. In Massachusetts, COSTEP Massachusetts, and that stands for Coordinated Statewide Emergency Preparedness. This is a long-running activity that was formed uh, back in 2003 when Boston hosted an Alliance for Re Response Forum. And COSTEP Massachusetts, Massachusetts worked with the State Emergency Management Office to create an annex to the State Emergency Operations Plan, Emergency Management Plan, for the protection of cultural and historical resources. So it is in writing that the state has to come to the assistance of cultural institutions when disaster befalls an institution, a cultural institution. And so following the tornadoes that swept through western Massachusetts and especially Springfield this past June, COSTEP Massachusetts worked with another organization, Preservation Massachusetts, which is a historic preservation organization, to coordinate a conference call similar to the national conference calls that Heritage Preservation does to get the cultural community talking to the emergency management community. There was a lot of questions about uh, the demolition of historic structures, obviously cities want to move forward and try to get through the damage and, and get on the path to recovery as quickly as possible. And the cultural community wants to put the brakes on and say, wait a minute, let's not just knock it down because it has damage. Let's figure out which ones really are historic, which ones are part of the, are on the historic register. And so this kind of collaboration is really valuable and is really going to help your state when your state gets affected. Uh, this is a picture of what state? Damage in what state? Vermont. Vermont. All right, so slowly but surely, the Alliance for Response Networks are raising the profile of cultural heritage in the world of emergency response. And many, I think all of the Alliance for Response disaster networks were very, very good about preparing for the onslaught of both Hurricane Irene and the coming of Tropical Storm Lee. For instance, the New York City Alliance Network has a seat at the City Emergency Operations Center. So they participated in both pre and post conference calls with the City Emergency Management Office. 
The Vermont Alliance for Response Forum led to the formation of a group called Vermont's Cultural Heritage and Art Recovery Team, or VCHART. Our world is rampant, runs rampant with acronyms. In the wake of Irene and Lee, VCHART is acting as an information resource gathering and sharing um, organization to help the cultural institutions as well as to provide information to state and cultural agencies that are responsible for trying to get recovery back on the path. So the, the agencies that Vermont uh, that VCHART is working on include the Vermont Historical Society, which is the current host of VCHART, the Vermont Preservation Trust, the Division for Historic Preservation, the State Archives and Public Records, the Department of Libraries, Vermont Emergency Management, and AIC CERT. And this is really just one example of many where institutions are trying to get together and do something about disaster preparedness. So here you see, you can't, you probably did your multiplication and said, I don't see 18 there. I was wondering whether anyone would notice. But there were a number in the state of California. So we do, trust me, we did do 18. Um, you can sign up if you're interested at all in the Alliance for Response. You can sign up to get regular web updates on our webpage. Uh, we have had two Alliance for Response forums this year, one in Portland, Oregon in February. We had one in the Galveston, Houston area right when Hurricane Dawn was threatening and there was a big question actually some of our emergency managers had to pull out because they weren't sure, they were um, not sure whether they would have to be called to respond. Uh, and we dodged the bullet, Houston dodged the bullet there. Still and no rain. Still no rain, <laughs> I know, I know. And, and I know very, so many people were interested, wanted tropical, well wanted Lee to come and not do much damage but at least drop rain on Texas. But no, but no. Um, and coming in, in November is an, emergent, is an uh, Alliance for Response Forum in Salt Lake City, which I'm coordinating with Randy Silverman back there. Also on our webpage is a forum toolkit that contains program templates and great project ideas that were generated by the various Alliance for Response disaster networks. And again, I encourage you, R&D, use that information. You can use the toolkit to help plan a forum, to work, learn how to work with emergency responders, to identify the allies in your community that you need to connect with, and to form a local disaster network. You don't need an official Alliance for Response Forum to do this. You can, all the tools are there for you, but we certainly would be delighted if you wanted to partner to create something, and you might even consider doing an implementation, implementation grant to bring an Alliance for Response Forum to your state. So with that, um, I think we're through, and again, we have handouts here, and I will open it up to questions. Kevin. All right, now this is going to be tricky because I'm sure all of you from the same state are not sitting right next to each other. Um, but do look around. Oh, so, so the question is, how many of you um, are in a state where you have a disaster, I, I'd say a, a disaster network established or in the process of being established, or do you want it separated even more? In the process of being established, it's been discussed or, or already have something. All right. 
So let's, let's have the states. There's Texas. There is Vermont. Vermont Georgia. Georgia. Massachusetts. Maine. Maine Illinois. Great. Illinois. Mississippi. Mississippi North Dakota. North Dakota. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> great. Great. North Carolina. Connecticut. Delaware. Virginia. Virginia. Delaware. Great. Great. That's wonderful. I want to hear 50 plus the territories <laughs> next time. Um, I, that's right. I didn't say if you want to start an alliance for a response program in your state or territory. I wrote it in this morning, but I didn't say it. Other questions? Yes. Question. Repeat the question. Oh. Um, the question was, how did Lorraine and I um, evaluate the success of our program? We, the way we were measuring in Connecticut is we actually did physical evaluation forms at the end of all the workshops. And in it, we always ask, what is the first thing you're going to do when you get back? And so when they say something like, I'm going to tell my director that we have to do X, Y, and Z, or I'm going to make sure I have this plan done. We then try to follow up with emails and phone calls. And so for us, seeing the number of institutions that we started with who are actually almost completed with their disaster plan and have stayed with this entire workshop series for almost two years, to us is how we've measured that it is working. We also did uh, post-workshop evaluation forms. And because we are in full-fledged workshop mode and we want to offer workshops on everything we need to offer workshops to serve them, one of our questions is, what sort of workshops do you need? And so we're getting more and more responses on different types of workshops. And we also are following up with our participants, and we're going to resurvey towards the end of our project. We have another year to go and find out what the status how much they used, what we gave them, uh, how many more disaster plans have been written across the state, and that sort of thing. And we, our original survey said 72% of our institutions didn't have disaster plans. We know we've already reduced that by several percentage points, and we hope to have it in the 60s by uh, the time we're finished. And a wonderful world would be in the 50s, but we're going to resurvey towards the end of our project. And, <coughs> <coughs> you don't seem to have, have success getting people to attend your workshops. Do you have any tips or clues on how you got people out of their museum into your workshop? Question was how we got people to our workshops. Good food is always a good thing. <laughs> yeah, we feed them very well. Donuts and coffee from Krispy Kreme all the way in the morning. Um, but we, we keep them low cost. We keep them in their area. And we do it on topics we know they want. And, um, you know, sometimes in some areas, we, we end up calling all the institutions in the area to let them know we have a workshop. We have a listserv. And I know that's so 20th century. But we have a listserv that they say they like, so we keep it. And we have 750 people in our listserv in our state who, you know, whenever we have a workshop, we tell them about it. And please share the word, and it gets on other listservs, and, you know, it probably goes to other states. But um, 
getting the word out. We work with our publicity department. It gets in the newspaper. We get general public coming to our workshops, too, but mostly it's people from institutions. And it's, it's just – and we've built a reputation. Word of mouth really has helped. So, you know, one person tentatively comes to our workshop – and they had a good experience. They learned something. They go back and they tell their colleagues in their region. And then at the next workshop we offer in a nearby region, they go, we came because so-and-so somewhere sold, said it was useful. So uh, that's, that's one of our success measures, too. Um, we did something very similar in Connecticut for the three-part workshop series. For If you sent only one participant for your institution, it cost you um, $45. So we really used our implementation grants to make sure that this was extremely low cost and affordable. We also, um, since Conservation Connection is a new group for people in Connecticut, we made sure to collaborate with our State His Humanities Council, the Connecticut League of History organizations, so that groups that they were familiar with, particularly the Connecticut League is the group in the state that pre presents training workshops regularly and has for years. So that's the group they're comfortable with. So by working with them, they're like, oh, okay, this is something that the League has done too. They're working with them. This is a group that we're comfortable with. But we also tried to make it really accessible, really close, and we did some scare tactics too, you know. When, you know, uh, we were looking for signups uh, about the time that uh, the tornado hit Bridgeport, Connecticut. It was an F1, which I know for Midwesterners like <laughs> F1. Um, <laughs> I, I you send an F1 tornado down Bridge in a main drag in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and oh yo yo, the Barnum Museum was just so badly damaged and is still recovering. So. I, I admit writing some things, you know, are you ready for an F1, you know, and, and you know, it brings people out. <laughs> so, but we, we've been very fortunate. We've had really good response, and I think it's because the way that we spread out the amount of uh, commitments. We were told repeatedly, we have, in addition to this disaster workshop, we also did a storage workshop series saying that, you know, a well-organized and well-understood collection goes hand-in-hand -hand with salvage and preparedness. And we had programs in the summer, we had programs all over the state, and you know, all we hear in Connecticut is that if it's not held between April and October, no one's gonna go. And so we were, we had them all times of year, and we find that really, if you put together something that's really interesting and really in need, they'll come, they'll drive, they'll be cranky, but have coffee and, and, and desserts and they're fine, so. Uh, we also <laughs> offered our workshops on Mondays regularly because most of our institutions close on Mondays, and so therefore they're not having to close their institution to come to our workshops. That's another thing. And we did... Yeah, we do Mondays as well. Scare yeah. tactics do work. <laughs> yes. He was asking about the uh, staff I hired through the implementation grant monies. One is a disaster preparedness coordinator. He was our first responder that I hired. He was, when we for crafted the job description, that was the kind of person I was hoping for. I was hoping for somebody who had worked in a museum but also was a firefighter, but we didn't find one of those. <laughs> he was the ideal guy, but he didn't exist. And uh, 
Matthew has been awesome in helping us. He, he's been teaching our instant command systems classes. He's getting us all certified in that. And uh, the collections care trainer is actually here. She can wave her hand. Well, stand up. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> uh, Adrian comes from a museum's background and has uh, understanding of caring for collections with conservation and curatorial things. So she teaches workshops as well. And we average about two workshops a month, one disaster workshop, one collections workshop. And sometimes we've done three, and one month we did five. <laughs> so, yes, we, we do plenty. And we also, one workshop we did do that I didn't discuss was we worked with the National Weather Service to offer Skywarn workshops. And they do those for free. And they, bring, they send a meteorologist out to your workshop, and they teach you how to read the weather patterns in your area, particularly in tornado season, if you can figure out which way a storm's coming, if you have public on your property and you need to get them to safety, it helps you figure those sorts of things out. So contact your local meteorologist and ask if you can get one of those workshops. And they bring lots of paper and handouts and bling with pens and pads, things like that. Well, as always, thank you all for coming out. Uh, we are at the end of our time. Thank everybody. Thank Rebecca. I do have one quick announcement, and those of you who are standing in the back have been so patient. Thank you very much. Uh, ASLH is going to move the rest of our sessions back to Salon 5, where we were yesterday. So we'll have a little bit more room. Um, so thank you to ASLH. Thank the staff when you see them. Uh, but uh, the next event is the keynote speech for the conference.